Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. I've been telling you for a long time that savewithconrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Jeremy, which one of the podcasts is your favorite one? Uh, my favorite one is probably uh, What Happened When with Tony. Uh, what made you go to Save with Conrad um, in the first place? What was your goal? Uh, save a little bit of money, condense some of my debt. Instead of paying three different monthly payments on some things, now I'm only doing one monthly payment, and it's actually less. Out of this whole process, do you remember how much money you were able to save? Nine hundred. I'm probably paying about two hundred dollars, two hundred fifty dollars less a month. Being able to have that two fifty in your pocket, or two hundred in your pocket at the end of the month is is a huge deal big help big help would you recommend us to anybody like a friend or a family member uh definitely so what are you waiting for find out how much money you can save right now for free you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket even credit scores in the 500s can be approved and if we can't save you money we won't waste your time but because we're licensed in more than 40 states we can help more families than ever before find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, it's an amazingly great day here. High atop Carter View Drive, Casa de Bischoff Studios. It's just about perfect. I like that. I, I like that you're, you're naming your studio now. That's pretty fun. Well, this is going to be fun today because I get to... Uh, get to poke the bear a little bit. We're revisiting a very special nitro that happened 20 years ago on June 5th at the Phillips arena in Atlanta. And although this is not the best of times for WCW, there is some fun stuff in here that we're not going to be doing this watch along. Eric, you watch this show back. So you know what I'm going to be busting your balls about, but anytime you're in Atlanta, this was a big deal for WCW and. I guess we're about a month away from the whole big bash at the beach debacle of 2000. That's really going to help solidify your decision to move on a little bit with the way things are happening in WCW. Of course, Hulk Hogan's going to have a big fallout. We've talked about all of that in our archives, but even in 2000 WCW coming to do nitro in Atlanta, it's a pretty, uh, special occasion because you've got all the local Turner executives there too, right? 
Um, not as many as one might think. I mean, we had we had a few, but by 2000, there were more Turner executives trying to distance themselves from WCW than actually being interested in showing up and showing support. Keep in mind, internally in, in 2000, there was so many. There were so many people inside the, the higher levels of Turner, the executive committee level, and and certainly Time Warner. They couldn't wait to figure out a way to get rid of WCW. So there weren't as many executives hanging out as you might think. Let's, um, let's mention that even though this is not sort of the heyday of WCW, we still have 13,487 fans in the Phillips arena. And once upon a time, you guys were next door at the Georgia dome and it was an incredible visual, but 13,487 fans seems encouraging. But then I found in my research, only 5,900 of those paid. How do you get that much paper? I mean, uh, is this something that you're just passing out to friends and family of the Turner properties and Hey, let's bring everybody we know. Or do you think that at this point, you guys are probably doing a lot of promotions uh, with radio and TV and, you know, other sort of local partners to help just, Hey, let's get people in the building and make this thing look good. I don't know that I'm ready to stipulate that only 5,900 of them were paid. You know, I don't know where that research came from. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that, it, that it's not true. I'm just not prepared to believe it on, on the surface without backing that up a little bit. And the reason I say that is because in watching this show, the first note that I made is this crowd is fired up. I mean, they're on their feet for the majority of this two hour show. And that doesn't happen when you paper a crowd, people that show up only because they get a free ticket are generally not the most passionate group. And when I watched this show from beginning to the end, almost there were some, there were some dull spots in it where the crowd wasn't reacting, but for the majority of the show, everybody was on their feet. So I don't know, maybe it's true. Kind of hard to believe that you would generate that much excitement, enthusiasm among fans who wouldn't have come unless they got a free ticket. Well, it's worth mentioning though, you know, 59, 39, 6,000 person house. That's more than, I mean, but when house shows were a thing, that's more than, uh, I mean, that's like a dynamite TV crowd. Right. And that's more than most WWE house shows. I mean, I don't think. I couldn't tell you the last time there were 6,000 people at my local arena. No, and, and, and I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that 6,000 is a good number. If you would have said, you know, 6,000 people showed up, my response would have been, well, every one of those people had a great time right? because they were into the show. I'm just suggesting that, you know, based on what I saw, if there were 13,000 people in, in that arena, um, 12,500 of them were on their feet, the majority of the two hour show. And I just, it, it's just a disconnect to me to think that there was that many free tickets. Cause in my experience, people that get free tickets, they'll, they'll come, they'll react, they'll laugh, they'll have a good time, but they're not really what you would call, you know, passionate fans. No doubt. Well, listen, here's the thing that we've got going on for us here. Uh, we've got a gate of $178,295. So that's going to be roughly a $30 ticket for those 6,000 fans. So I do believe the number, but still. How many times did we cover shows where the gates were way under a hundred thousand dollars? So to have a gate of, you know, 178 grand, when you first came in the WCW, that would have been high fives all around. Dude. When I first got to WCW, people like 
fantasized and, 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 you know, tried to imagine what it would be like to, to hit a hundred thousand dollars. That was like the, that was like the, the Holy grail. God, if we could, you know, Gary Jester used to, you know, hide in his office and probably jerk off over the idea of thinking about being able to, you know, promote a show that would get a hundred thousand, you know, dollar gate. And here we are in 2000 where the wheels have definitely fallen off WCW WWE has been kicking our ass now for a couple of years, putting out a much better product, a much edgier product, much more coherent product, and we're still drawing $173,000. It is kind of amazing in retrospect. It is. I mean, even when business is down, it's still much greater than almost everywhere else. Uh, Well, with one exception, of course. Uh, The next pay-per-view, by the way, is six days from this. Uh, This is the go-home edition of Monday Nitro for the great American bash, which we'll cover another time. Uh, but it's great American bash 2000. <laughs> and, uh, there's a human torch match. Uh, that's a part of this, uh, pay-per-view and this is the go home edition. We're about a month away from the slamboree pay-per-view, which is now in the rear view, which we've recently covered. We saw Jeff Jarrett win the world title from David Arquette in the ready to rumble style three tier cage match. Also in the match was DDP and we did a sort of a breakdown of all that on the Arquette show that we did a couple of months back, which is available in the archives over at adfreeshows.com. On the May 15th Nitro, we would see Ric Flair win his last world title by defeating Jeff Jarrett. Uh, but Vince Russo would help strip Rick of the title just one week later on May 22nd. And Russo would then award the vacant title to Jeff Jarrett, but Kevin Nash steals the belt. And then Nash is forced to face Jarrett in a no holds barred match, which Jarrett wins and WWE officially recognizes Jarrett's reign as lasting two days and ending on May 24th, 2000, when the following episode aired on a tape delay. So lots of moving and shaking here. Um, I guess it's kind of cool that, you know, a couple of weeks prior to this, Rick wins his last world title, but then the next week just have Russo strip it and then. Kevin Nash is going to steal it from Jeff Jarrett. Uh, I don't know. What do you make of this? It feels like we're devaluing the most quote unquote valuable stake we have on our presentation. So when I first started, when I got my pilot's license and I decided I'm going to learn, I'm going to get instrument rated. So I had my own plane and I wanted to be able to fly in almost any weather conditions. So I started instrument training. And one of the first things I remember about my instrument training was going up with my instructor and they put this hood over you while you're flying the plane. So you can't see anything. And then the instructor takes over the controls and does a series of dives and turns and climbs and all designed to disorient you and induce vertigo. And then you have to kind of react to that state of vertigo by using only your instruments because the the hood that they put over you only allows you to see the only thing you can see are the instruments. You can't see any visual references outside of the cockpit of the plane. Listening to you describe <laughs> the evolution of what happened a month before leading up to this induced that same state of vertigo that my flight instructor did when they tried to get me to fly dizzy. That's how it made me feel listening to that. Oh my God. What a, what a cluster. Well, as we said, this is the go home edition of nitro for the great American bash 
We're going to see a new world champion, Jeff Jarrett, defend against the former champion, Kevin Nash. We're also going to see Ric Flair wrestle his own son, David Flair. And if Rick loses, he has to retire. We're going to see another potential retirement match on the same show where Hulk Hogan is going to wrestle Kidman for a shot at the world title at Bash at the Beach. And Hulk's nephew, Horace, is the ref. And if Hulk loses, he has to retire. So there's lots going on. You and Russo are still running things and you've been working together for going on two months at this point. How are things personally and professionally for the two of you at this point? Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to share something because I knew, I knew this question was going to come up or a version of it. Um, I'm kind of, I'm embarrassed to say what I'm about to say, but it's the truth. One of the only things that I am truly embarrassed about in my career, take all the mistakes, take all the creative decisions that people like to rip apart, whatever, whatever it is you think. And, and, and none of those things are it, right? What, what I am embarrassed about it. I thought about it a lot this morning is that I allowed myself to participate in something that was nothing but a transaction for me. Meaning when I came back to WCW after they let me go in September of 99, then I got a call a couple months later saying, Hey, okay, we fucked up with Rizzo. Would you mind coming back? What would it take? And I have got, I'm not going to go into it again. I've gone into it in plenty, plenty in the past. I had some agents over at CA that were really good at, at leveraging opportunities. And I, and I came back and I came back with a hell of a deal, hell of a deal. And Shortly after I got back, the first couple of weeks was fine, you know, because I really felt like, okay, my, my, my intentions, my motivation um, w- w- was good. I came back because I really hoped that I could figure out a way to work with Vince Russo and to kind of change things uh, it, it, so that WCW was on better, a better foundation creatively. I really believed I could, and that, that's why I did it. But after having worked with Russo for, you know, several weeks, a month, whatever it was, month and a half, I realized it was not going to happen. It just wasn't going to work. He, it just wasn't. And rather than saying to Brad Siegel, look, Brad, not going to make it happen. It's not going to work. I can't do it. I just, I kind of showed up. I didn't really put forth the effort. I, I wasn't really emotionally invested. I was fulfilling an obligation. That's the best way to say it. I was fulfilling an obligation. And for me personally, fulfilling an obligation and being passionate and throwing myself into something are two entirely different things. And I, I, God, I can't think of a better way to say it is I took the money. I showed up, I did what I had to do. Um, argue, you know, I could probably make the case, you know, I didn't have the, the, the control and the power and I didn't have the final voice and all that, you know, those are all excuses. Um, the fact is I showed up, I did what I had to do. I wasn't into it. I wasn't passionate about it. And I took the money and I'm embarrassed to say that because I don't think that's ever the right reason to take a job or, or, or to stay in a job. You know, I took the job from with the right intentions but I stayed in the job knowing I was just doing it for the money. And I, I, I'm angry at myself for that. So it's not going well. 
with you and with no, you it sucked. It sucked. You know, and again, when I say it sucked, it was like, fuck it. You know, I didn't have an office at, at WCW anymore. I didn't have to show up at corporate. I didn't have to deal with a lot of things that I used to have to deal with, you know, when WCW, when I was there, I was literally, you know, my job, if you could even call it, there was never even a written outline of what my job was. It was just a conversation I had with Brad Siegel was to oversee Vince Rousseau and try to keep him from going off the rails. That was my job. And I'd fly in, you know, I'd do TV or pay-per-view or whatever. I'd fly home. All of the communication beyond that was over the phone and via fax uh, or computer. You know, and I'd collaborate on, on formats and things like that. But I didn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, with the hiring, firing, and talent, the day-to-day operations of business. So all that stuff was gone for me. So I, I didn't. Number one, I didn't even really feel a part of it, and that's that's on me. You know, that's my that was my fault for not handling the transition better than I did, because I just never felt truly engaged, and that might have been part of it too for me. Is when I don't feel like I'm, you know, really a part of something, it's harder for me to keep interest in it. But no, it, it it wasn't miserable. It wasn't like every time I you know picked up the phone and you know Vince Russo was on the other and I didn't want to like throw myself in front of a moving garbage truck. Um, well, maybe a couple times towards the end, but for the most part, it was just you know very matter of fact. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I was just doing it. Okay, Eric, we've got to take a time out here and tell everybody about a great new sponsor here on our show. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot and we've heard a lot about the relief that CBD offers for extreme aches and pains, but what if there's something better than CBD? We found it. It's called Leafa, and it's a brand new relief cream that works on contact and you don't need a prescription for it. You've been using this for a while now, Eric. How's it working? Works great for me. Re- really does. And I- I'm not a biologist or a chemist by any stress of the imagination, but I think the balance of ingredients here that allows um, the, the CBD um, ingredients to get into your system faster and, and probably more deeply um, works fantastic. I've used other CBD products before, but I, I really, really love this. I do. I think everybody's going to love it. I've applied it. I've got uh, some trouble with my left knee. I've got some, some torn stuff in there for a long, long time that I've just put off. I'm not ever really fixed. I apply a little bit of this stuff, man. Leafa hooks me up. I feel really great. It absorbs fast. It leaves no greasy residue. And Leafa made my knee feel so much better on contact. It smells great too. It's not a bad medicine smell like you may have had with other products, but you don't have to take my word for it. Try this stuff for yourself. You got to experience Leafa's relief. And they're even going to give you a free, which by the way, is a $60 value nationwide trial. Leafa is doing a free nationwide trial. All you've got to do is pay shipping. Try it right now for free and get your free Leafa by going to getleafacream.com. That's getleafacream.com for your free trial. That's G-E-T-L-E-F-A-C-R-E-A-M.com. Getleafacream.com to try it right now for free. (sighs) <sighs> two retirement what? matches coming up at Great American Bash. The two big what? stars. What, what? You sounded so exasperated. What? Did I say no. something? That- no, not at all. I just, I, I'm really struggling with, we've got Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair on the roster and we want to have stakes, which is something you and I've talked about a lot. Not just Omaha stakes, but stakes for the matches 
and we have a Hulk Hogan retirement match and a Ric Flair retirement match on the exact same show. And when I ran through that a minute ago, you just had this big like, because I mean, well, you can't, if you have two, neither one makes, neither one matter, right? Like if you have one, it's a big deal. But if you have two, it's like, nah, just another match. No, it's like having, you know, three hardcore matches back to back. What the fuck? What? No, you're right. And I'm, I'm embarrassed. You know, I let it happen. I could have in the position I was in, even though I didn't have any control and I didn't have the final vote vote. That was Brad Siegel's, right? That was the deal. You know, work with Vince Russo. If you guys can't work it out, let, you know, Brad Siegel be the tiebreaker. That was the, you know, unofficial kind of uh, architecture of that trifecta. Um, and I should have, I should have, I should have stood up. I should have said no. I should have applied myself more than I did here. That's one of the reasons why I'm embarrassed. It's, it's this show. There's, there's some things about it that I thought were pretty interesting, but there's so many things about it that I know were so wrong and I knew they were wrong back then. And I just, I didn't, I'm embarrassed. I feel like, I don't know. I'm embarrassed. I don't know any other way to say it. I didn't apply myself the way I should have applied myself. And I'm, not proud of that. Well, let's get you on something. I know you enjoy talking about Dave Meltzer would write multi-channel news ran a story about the WCW SFX negotiations saying that the May 25th meeting between the two sides may have been about acquiring a stake in the company as SFX requests a detailed financial information about the company, a three-year cash flow statement and a listing of all employees, titles, contracts, and information about pending litigation. Turner sports spokesperson, Greg Hughes said in the story that WCW was not for sale, but many sources indicate the company is trying to unload the financial burden, but if possible, maintain the programming. The story said WCW is projected to post a $61.2 million loss this year as an entity and also drain the time Warner Inc earnings because of more money spent on programming costs this year, but lesser results as far as garnering ad revenue because of declining ratings. Jason Hervey and Mandalay sports have been the intermediary in the SFX slash WCW negotiations. Hervey is a longtime friend of Eric Bischoff. Chat me up. What is this? Uh, does this ring a bell? There were some discussions, um, with SFX and they were pretty serious discussions, I guess, initially, um, they weren't cursory, uh, but there was never any real traction there. And I think one of the things that WCW was looking for was a clear channel type promoter, you know, somebody that already had a sophisticated infrastructure that was already promoting live events around the country that already around the world for that matter, that had a footprint, you know, with, with arenas and venues all over the world so that we could offload some of the live event components of our show and focus mostly on television. So that part of that whole thing was true. Where, again, you know, the $61 million loss, I encourage people, read Guy Evans' book. I just listened to an interview this morning, actually, when I got up early, early this morning. I found it on my Twitter feed um, where a, a couple of journalists in the UK interviewed Guy Evans and was asking questions about, now this is Guy Evans, the guy that did, unlike Dave Meltzer and that little Jack Sniffin pimple on a hamster's ass, you know, partner his, Brian Alvarez. Um, 
unlike the horrible reporting, it's not even reporting, it's speculation and bullshit that they did where they're talking about the $60 million. A guy that actually interviewed people on the finance side of Turner Broadcasting acknowledges that a lot of those losses were, were other people's losses that they, it, it, through intercompany allocations, dumped on WCW because they knew they were getting rid of WCW. And that way the losses would show up in WCW's side of the equation and not on some other department's side of the equation, making that other department look better than they otherwise would have had they not been able to dump their losses into WCW. Perfectly legal, by the way. I'm not suggesting that it wasn't. That is the mystery and in, in, in the shell game of interna- intercompany inter- allocations. But again, this from a guy who actually did the research of the people, did interviews with the people who were actually instrumental in all that. So when you hear the $60 million loss narrative, know that that's Dave Meltzer and and Brian, whatever his name is, Alvarez, not doing a fucking minute's worth of actual research because they're lazy fucking scumbags. Okay, I'm off that. What was the question? Well, I wanted to ask you to take a <laughs> run of time out right now, because last week when we were covering, uh, the first AEW pay-per-view double or nothing, 2019, you went on and on about how much you loved Cody and Dustin, but most importantly, the young buck match and, and the Lucha bros. But the thing that really stuck out to a lot of people is you went on an incredible tangent, murdering great close personal friend of the show, Alex Marvez. Only to later realize, wait a minute, you meant Brian Alvarez. I know. I feel so horrible about that. And I'm really glad you put a pin in that and brought that up here. Because I want to personally apologize to Alex Marvis. I did immediately. And one of my one of the one of my followers on Twitter pointed it out to me. And the minute he did it, he went, I went, oh my God. Now I'm I'm going to Alex Marvez's play-by-play. You you didn't enjoy his work, but you weren't going to just fucking murder the guy. No, because I don't know him. Right. I've got nothing against him. I've never met the guy that I can recall. I I may have even done an interview with him or two in the past. I don't know. But I absolutely feel like the world's biggest schmuck for unloading on a guy that didn't deserve it. So I, I apologize if I ever get to meet Alex, I'll, I'll buy him a steak dinner. I'll, I'll, I'll take him out for sushi. Whatever he wants, it's on me. He doesn't even have to go with me. Probably hates my guts now, and I don't blame him. But I'll still buy him the damn dinner, and he can take a guest of his choice, and I'll still pay for it. So I apologize. I was a complete ass. I admit when I'm wrong, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Well, all good. Uh, I'm glad that we got that cleared up. Um, you have done interviews with Alex back when he wrote for uh, newspapers in South Florida and whatnot, but it's a different guy than Brian Alvarez. So yeah, Brian Alvarez is that's the little sawed off jock sniffing piece of shit that follows Dave Meltzer around. Like he's handed out free cookies. I mean, that that's, that's the guy I thought I was talking about. You know, the guy that, you know, wasn't Brian Alvarez supposed to show up and debate the, the, the piece of shit book that he had something to do with? He was invited. He was invited, but he took a pass. No, he no, but he did. Okay. Taking a pass is one thing, but didn't he make the claim that he didn't want to be on the stage with me because he, he didn't want to give me the rub. Are you kidding me? This little 
sawed off piece of shit. You could roll them in dog shit, run them, run them through the woods and flies wouldn't even be attracted to him. Nobody knows who he is. And he missed the golden opportunity to defend that tripe that he wrote with that other goof. I don't remember his name anymore. And he, he, rather than manning up and getting on stage and owning up to the nonsense, he decided he was going to no-show. Chicken shit. Whatever. But I do, I do apologize to Alex. Alex is I, 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 not a big fan of your play-by-play, Alex. I'm going to tell you. It's not your strong suit. He's not All doing right, it it's anymore. Great, it's well. <laughs> there you go. All right, we agree on that. But um, certainly did not justify me going off on him because I thought he was somebody else. Let's get back to the show here. Like we mentioned, this is the Nitro. That's a go home show for the Great American Bash. Uh, did you have like a formula, or do you know that that Russo maybe had a formula for? All right. On our go home show, you always make sure you sell your a angle in the top segment and your B angle at the crossover. Was there a formula like that for, Hey, this is the tried and true way to sell a pay-per-view a few days out. No, we didn't. You know, and I, I, it's funny that you bring that up because I, it was really when I got to TNA, I'm going to be careful not to go too far in the weeds in this. Cause this is just not necessarily on topic. But when, when Herbie and I were producing a lot of reality shows, we'd pitch these shows. And one of the first things when you go in to pitch a television show, and I haven't done it in a couple of years, so things may have changed. I don't know. But when we would go in and pitch a television show, um, the, usually the first question that you know an executive, or and usually there was more than one executive in the room of, of a network, <clears throat> the first thing they would say is, okay, what's the show? Tell me what the show is. Don't tell me who's in the show. Don't you know, give me all the sizzle. Give me the steak. Put some meat on the bone. What's the show? And in the beginning, you know, we would struggle with that because both Herbie and I were really good salesmen. And while we could see the show in our heads, and we had you know PowerPoints and decks we put together, but the question that the the executives were really asking was, what's the format? They didn't say what's the format. But that's really what they wanted to know. They wanted to know how was this show crafted in such a way as to attract an audience at the beginning, hold them through the middle of the show, the crossover, as you would point out here, perhaps if it was a a one-hour show, um, and how did it pay off? And how did we hook them to keep them coming back next week? That's a formula. Call it a formula. Call it a format. Call it whatever you want. And after having gone through that process from about 2002 probably all the way up until the time that Herbie and I really stopped working together producing shows which was about 2017 maybe 2018 17 I guess um, we kind of perfected that and in during that period of time is when I really learned from working with others honestly um, how to really uh, identify and perfect that A, B, C, and D storyline format and apply it to wrestling. So by the time I got to TNA, this is this long-winded answer, by the time I got to TNA, I had a very firm grasp on A stories, B stories, you know, and, and not only had a firm grasp on how to grasp on how to use them within a particular format, but more importantly, how to take what has been a D story and a C story for the first couple of weeks and start evolving it so that 
in a period of time that we predetermined, if we wanted our D story to be the main event three months from now, we would grow that D story so that after a couple of weeks, it became the C story. And after a couple more weeks, it became the B story. And before you know it, now it's the A story and you blow it off in a pay-per-view. And I really learned how to adapt that A, B, C, D kind of, and, and there, you know, you take it all the way down through a two hour show. You had more than that but really learned how to do that. But it really wasn't until I got to TNA that that was kind of a, a formula that was almost second nature to me. So to answer your question, no, that we were flying by the seat of our pants. We were operating on gut instinct and, and nothing more. And if I were to try to suggest to you that there was more rhyme nor reason to some of the things that we did in this show and that there was actually a strategy behind it, I would be blowing so much smoke, you would think I was Vince Russo. So I'm not going to do that. We were flying blind. All right, let's talk about something that you and I have to do every week here on the show. And uh, let's do a little research, do a little prep. And during that, we're wearing our Raycon earbuds. And this has become a regular part of my life. And we've been talking about Raycon for a long, long time. Uh, but since everybody's been working from home, I got to tell you, I used mine a lot more than I ever thought I might beforehand. It was just when I was watching wrestling or maybe listening to music, but I've been taking calls. I've been doing business on my Raycons and it's become just a uh, part of my daily routine. How about you, Eric? Same here, brother. The other day, um, Mrs. B sent me to the store. I had, I do the grocery shopping for whatever reason. That's like my, on my list of things to do every probably two or three days. So I load up my dog, I jump in the truck, I'm heading down the road, I get about 15 minutes from my house, I go, damn, I forgot my earbuds. I had to turn the truck around, drive all the way back home, because I just don't leave home without them. I just don't. And particularly like when I'm in my truck, you know, the dog's in the truck, I get the windows down, it's noisy, right? So if I get a phone call in my truck with my dog and the noisy wind, and I got my earbuds in, I can have a perfect conversation that I couldn't have if I didn't have those earbuds. So I'm like you, I use it for everything. And here's the other thing. I don't know how much news you watch, but if, if you watch the news now, everything, you know, everybody's doing everything via Zoom or Skype. Right. Very few people are in a studio studio. So everybody's wearing these goofy fucking little white earbuds that hang down to about the bottom of your jaw. Yeah. It looks like some cheap kind of fucking dollar story earring that you're grandma bought is really ridiculous looking i find them just you know when i see people wearing it's like what the fuck are you wearing wearing those for when you could be wearing these and nobody could even really see them when they're in your ear and they're comfortable and they sound better too yeah no dangling wires or stems it's not going to distract anybody during your video calls these are stylish they're discreet it's raycon all the way man whether you're working out or you're working at home or whatever you got going on, the dogs, the kids, whatever's happening in the background, it's all gone away. Thanks to the wireless earbuds from Raycon. And by the way, you already know that Raycon earbuds start about half the price of those other premium wireless earbuds on the market. But as Eric said, you need to know they sound as good. And I think even better, especially when it comes to bass. we should also mention their newest model, the everyday E25 earbuds. These are perhaps the best ones yet. They've got six hours of playtime, seamless, and I mean seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, as I said, and a more compact design that's going to give you a nice noise isolating fit. We should mention too, Eric, that you've mentioned before that some other earbud solutions you've tried 
they're not exactly comfortable. You always went for the over the year, but these are so comfortable. They're perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. And you've heard us talk about how it was founded by Ray J, which is why it's called Raycon. But you got to know that Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, JR, Brandy, everybody is using Raycon. They're all obsessed with them. So pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. And now it's time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon, including 15% off when you go to buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. Again, you'll get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. That's 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds at buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. This is a big nitro, maybe the biggest nitro since you and Russo took back over as sort of a joint powers that be here. We see Goldberg's first match in uh, six months. He's going to take on tank Abbott. And I think you guys even bought like a big ad in the USA today to hype his return. And, um, it's like a pay-per-view lineup of matches here. What was, I mean, do you, could you guess maybe a cost of a USA today ad? Because this is something that you guys did pretty commonly and you've explained the strategy and I want you to explain that again, but what was the cost and why was USA the best bang for the buck? God, I, I wish I remembered the cost. I six figures. I, I think it was, I think it was, I was going to say a hundred grand in the neighborhood of a hundred grand. Um, and, and that's just a guess, but I'm guessing that's what it was back then. And the reason that we felt it was a good investment was because of the fact that, you know, on, in any major market, you know, your Monday through Friday morning drive, classic rock, usually, uh, you've got your, your, your host and your co-host talking about sports. It's sports and music. In, in most of the major market radio for FM radio formats uh, that had classic rock. And there were a lot of regular just sports talk shows as well. And they would often find their topics um, to discuss on that morning show in the USA, the USA Today. They would just you know search the headlines to get the, the latest update on what was going on in the world of sports. And that would be included in their format, in their radio format, on any given morning. So... I, I thought, well, what better way to get free advertising all over the United States rather than buying the individual markets? I'll take out a really big full page ad that nobody can miss and give these jocks something, disc jockeys, something to talk about. Radio personalities in most cases. Give them something to talk about. So when they're looking for material to cover, Let's let's give it to them, and it didn't cost. It. So while they're talking about it, which normally would have, it would have cost us money to buy in that local market, um, we're getting it essentially for one flat rate of a hundred thousand dollars nationwide, which was a pretty good deal. It is, you know, and you've talked about the strategy before, and to get you know coverage like this nationwide, it makes sense. Let's get to the actual show. Uh, we see, uh, in a clip from earlier, tank Abbott and Rick Steiner arriving to the Phillips arena. And then the show opens with Russo and yourself walking to the ring with R and B security. You welcome back the Atlanta fans to the wrestling empire that you've built. And he said, Scott Steiner's going to face Vampiro and Kevin Nash, uh, would run the new blood gauntlet with the stipulation being that if Nash lost one match, he's going to relinquish his title shot at great American bash. And you also announced that. Sting is going to wrestle Jeff Jarrett. 
And then Russo is going to get on the mic and send out a challenge to John rocker of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, and then Vince would tell Rick Flair, he's going to wrestle in him in a cage later in this same show. And you say that at some point in the night, he's going to take, or you are going to take the uh, hardcore title from Terry Funk. And then we see Goldberg watching on a monitor in the back as Russo's talking smack about our hometown boy here. And Goldberg comes out to the ring, destroys the security. You and Russo run to the back. A lot happening in this open opening segment. What'd you think? Oh, it was hard one to watch. Um, and, and I think it's probably for personal reasons as much as anything. I just, I, I can't, when I hear Russo's voice, my skin begins to crawl. I just, I can't stand the sound of his fucking voice. And it's just, ah, it was hard to watch. And it was too long. Fuck, it went over 13 minutes, I think. I looked at it. It was like, oh, my God. Get to the point. Me too. You know, by the way, I was out there too long. You know, I had a lot of heat. The crowd reacted the way I wanted them to. Russo had zero fucking heat. I had pretty decent heat. Not as much as I had in 97 and 98. But it was still there. It was still, you know, there was enough heat there to work with. And, and to make use of. Um, but the segment just went so fucking long. It is a long segment. what do you think of, uh, and this doesn't age well, uh, the John rocker call out from Risa. I, you know, I'm not sure what's the deal with John rocker. I, you know, I'm, I'm a little disconnected. I'm not John, sure. I, John rocker is the really controversial baseball player who had some rather racist comments about New York and the people who live in New York. And, uh, he was not popular with, well, any minority, uh, African-Americans, homosexuals. If you weren't a white dude, uh, he probably pissed you off at some point in the late night. No wonder I don't, no wonder I don't remember his name. I thought it was just because I'm not really much of a baseball fan, but clearly this, clearly this is a guy that everybody wanted to forget. Yeah. Everybody hated this guy. Uh, backstage, you tell Jeff Jarrett to suck it up and defeat Sting later on their match. And then when Kidman asked you if he could take care of Horace, you said, do whatever you want. And this seems to anger Tori, who walks away. The first match on the show is for the World Tag Team titles. It's Chuck Palumbo and Sean Stasiak taking on Chronic. What did you think? I thought Tori Wilson looked great in that shot back in the locker room. Did you see that? Uh, yeah. I mean, come on. She put the side and side boob in that shot. That was awesome. 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 And Billy, God bless his soul. One of the best performers in the ring, but man, his promos just <sighs> less is more when it came to Billy Kidman on the mic. But, um, what did I think of it? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I didn't, not much. I couldn't think of anything positive to say about it other than, my comments about Tori. what do you think of the match that followed though, with chronic Palumbo and Stasiak, we see uh, Ernest, the cat Miller come in the ring and, and tell the referee to count the wrestlers out. Billy Silverman's going to refuse. So cat puts him in a chicken wing. Uh, and- yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, here's my thought. Um, my thoughts on that. I didn't make notes, but I remember watching it. Um, it, sh- it shocked me how, much the crowd was reacting to that silliness. 
you know, Ernest did a great job. He was doing what he was asked to do. That wasn't Ernest's idea, right? And the way he had Billy Silverman kind of chicken wing was a little bit awkward, to say the least. I wasn't really sure what he was doing with him. And part of that was a bad camera angle. But um, the whole thing took so long to develop that I'm really shocked that they were able to sustain the reaction from the crowd that they did. But they did. That's, again, you know, a perfect example. It's what we, you know, what I talked about a reference when we first started talking about this is how shocked I was that that crowd was as much of a fever pitch as they were from beginning to end. And this match is a perfect example. You know, if I would have looked at this match on paper without seeing the crowd reaction, I would have thought, oh, my God, this is going to kill the whole night. You're going to start off in the, in, in the toilet with this match. But after watching it on television, it shocked me how much the crowd was into it. Yeah, it, it is a little weird. I don't know if it's just because it's the hometown crowd or what, but the, the crowd's into it, even though some of it, well, it's not the best stuff that we've ever seen. Um, after the bell, uh, Miller would tell chronic that his best friend, Eric Bischoff is going to come kick him out. If they touch him, they attempt a double slam. They're stopped by Stasiak and Palumbo who were then left laying instead. And backstage, we see Billy Kidman tell Tori not to embarrass him in front of the bosses again. And when major guns comes to, uh, Tori's aid, Kidman calls her a dumb bitch and tells her to get lost. <laughs> Couldn't get away with that today. Could you <laughs> uh, backstage? Uh, we see, uh, Nash and Scott with your announcement from earlier in the show. And then we see uh, major guns tell the misfits in action that Kidman yelled at her GI bro, the former Booker T. Tells them that their mission for the night is to kick Kidman's ass. What'd you think of GI bro, which I believe was Booker T's first wrestling per, uh, persona in global way back in Houston in the day. But now that he sort of branded himself as Booker T, I think Russo or either you and Russo decide to create this misfits in action. Everybody gets different names. Of course, um, Hugh Morris humorous <laughs> is renamed general Hugh G Rection. And, uh, oh, God. now Booker T is that was, as... all, all of that is Russo. Don't, and, and I know you don't, <laughs> but let's don't, don't say you and Russo did this or did that and include this bullshit in that. That was done. God, I'm, I'm hoping I'm praying. I'm sure I'm probably wrong about this, but I'm hoping that it turns out that a lot of those choices and decisions were made before I got back. I don't know if I went along with it, then I need to get my ass kicked because this is so it's embarrassing. I mean, it's just huge erection, major guns. Come on. Are you 14 years old for crying out loud? Are you sitting out behind the garage with your best friend smoking a couple cigarettes you stole from your grandmother while you're leafing through a playboy jerking off over pictures of naked women because you'd never seen one before and somehow you get stuck in that fucking time warp in your head and even though you're a, a grown adult you still think like that 14 year old little jerk off smoking a fucking cigarette behind the garage looking at a playboy and you come out with major guns and huge erection you fucking man child Next up, we, uh, <laughs> we see Kevin Nash tell Goldberg to destroy tank and reminds him that 
uh, Hey, Nash owes you one. And, uh, the next match is GI bro with the misfits in action versus Billy Kidman with the filthy animals. And the finish would come when we see Tori come to the ring and deliver a low blow to Kidman. Kidman reaches into his pants to remove a cup, but then he's hit with the GI slam for the pin. And after the bell, the animals and Kidman attack MIA and bro, leaving them laying in the ring. Uh, you know, you told us what you thought of misfits in action. what did you think of the filthy animals presentation here? The shit. It was all the shit. It was all the same. It just, there was nothing, there was nothing that distinguished any of these individuals from each other or from their respective groups. It was just the, it's the sameness. And I think part of, you know, going back to when Brad Siegel called me up and said, Hey, you know, what would it take for you to come back and, and oversee Russo? One of the comments that, that always has stuck with me that Brad said, is he said, look, Vince is just too dark. His, his approach to television, everything is just nasty and dark. And I, I really wasn't sure what he meant, you know, because I had been watching WCW after I left in September 99. It wasn't like I was sitting at home, you know, watching it every week. So I wasn't really totally familiar with what he, or I didn't really understand what Brad meant when he said too dark. But this, I think, is an example of that. There's a, God, I don't know the word, Conrad. It's like, Everything had a layer of dirt or scum on it. Nothing was, no story was clean and crisp and easy to follow and triggered emotions as a result of it. Everything had this dark kind of, uh, I don't know, like sewage scum kind of vibe to it. And it's nothing against the talent that were involved. Again, talent was doing what the talent was asked to do and given an opportunity to do. So I don't mean to be, you know, castigating the talent here, but all of this stuff just felt so dirty. Just for the sake of being dirty. Major guns. She's a fucking porn star. Come on. I mean, why 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 does one think that somehow a wrestling audience is going to gravitate towards that you know miss hancock come on there's a 14 year old kid behind the garage smoking a cigarette reading playboy again all of his stuff had that same kind of juvenile just junky feel to it i don't know i can skip it i didn't like it i don't like any of it okay eric it's that time of the show uh this feels like uh we've done this i don't know every single episode Let's talk about your dick, Eric. Let's talk about bluechew.com. If you like sex, you're going to love bluechew.com. Bluechew offers men a performance enhancement for the bedroom. That's right. We're talking about PEDs for your penis. Bluechew.com can get you the first chewables with the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. And here's how it works. You go to bluechew.com and you work with one of their affiliated physicians. They're going to try to find the right dose and active ingredient for you. And by the way, the online physician consult is free. So it's cheaper than those other two, but because it's a chewable, it can even work faster and you can take it on a full or an empty stomach. And if you qualify, you get prescribed online very quickly and it comes to your house. It ships directly to your door in discreet packaging, which means you get to skip the in-person doctor visit. You get to skip the awkward conversation. You never have to wait in line at a pharmacy. And oh yeah, it was all described, prescribed by a doctor and made right here in the USA. It's hard to beat blue chew. 
And this has been a game changer in the Bischoff household, has it not? It has. It it really has. And you know, when when we first got the opportunity to work with Blue Chew, I was a little bit hesitant. You know, it's like, do I really want to talk about needing a little kick in the ass, so to speak? Um, You know, when it comes to my sex life, you know, it's not something that you normally go around bragging about, right? And then I had the opportunity to learn a little bit more about Blue Chew and realize that it's not that I need it, it's that I want it. Because what I really benefit from is the fact that I feel and perform and perform like I'm 25 years old again. It's just amazing. You know, and it's not that, you know, my sex life was was suffering. I didn't have issues, issues. But if you let me put it to you this way, if you're listening to this, you have an option. You go out to your garage and you've got a 1968 Ford F-150, F-100, sitting in the garage. Or you've got a beautiful Porsche 911 convertible. If you're looking for performance, what are you going to get into? Of course you're gonna get in the Porsche. Of course you want the best performance you could possibly enjoy. And that's what Bluetooth is. It's not about needing it. It's about wanting it because you want to be able to perform at your very best for your significant other. Mrs. B worships the ground I walk on for crying out loud. It's like, oh my God, Eric, you're 25 again. You're 28 again. We've been together for almost 40 years. So for me to be able to to maintain that, that, that the, 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 the respect and the admiration I have in my wife for being able to perform at the levels I can perform at because of Bluetooth is an amazing gift in my life. It's changed everything, Conrad. Everything. Find out what all the hubbub is all about. This thing has changed professional wrestling. Everybody's doing it, and you've got to, too. we got a special deal for you guys right now where you visit Bluetooth.com and you get your first order for free when you use promo code 83 weeks, just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B L U E C H E W.com. And the promo code is 83 weeks. Well, I'm sure you love the next one. You booked yourself to wrestle Terry Funk for the hardcore title. That was awesome. <laughs> the cat's here. He's passing weapons to you. You're going to swing them at Terry Funk in the ring. Terry hits you over the head with a trash can prompting the cat to take you to the back. Miss Hancock's enters the ring and starts to dance until Kimberly and Mike awesome come out. Kim says Hancock is stealing her spotlight hits her with a clipboard on the back. As Kim and awesome walk away, Hancock tells Mrs. Page to get her fat ass back in the ring. Kim says she's going to take care of Hancock later back to your match. Funk in yourself fight back up the ramp. With Funk wheeling you to the ring in a wheelbarrow. And backstage, Vince Russo tells the Mama Lukes to go out and stop the slaughter. And in the ring, Funk starts to drop his pants, exposing his ass to you while you're slumped in the corner. And then the Mama Lukes come out and beat up Funk with a chair and a broom handle. And then uh, Big Vito puts you on top of Funk for the pin. And now, Eric Bischoff is the WCW hardcore champion having picked up a win over the hardcore icon himself, Terry Funk. 
Um, Eric, who booked this shit? What the fuck? Oh, you know, I can't blame it on Russo because I had the ability, especially because it involved me, I would have had the ability to pull the plug on it, and I clearly didn't. Uh, this is, uh, you know, did, this must be some kind of effort on your part to help me grow as a human being by recognizing all the stupid shit that I've done in the past because it's all right here in front of us. All one has to do is look at the show and go, eh, you should have never done that. Eh, eh, you should have never done that. I mean, there's so much of it here. And honestly, I'm, I'm not even trying to be funny. I just cringed when I saw this because I forgot about the match. I knew that I wrestled Terry. I knew that I beat him for the hardcore title. That in and of itself doesn't bother me too much uh, because the hardcore title and the big scheme of things didn't really mean all that much in WCW anyway. And I just, I was not a fan of hardcore matches to begin with. So for me, you know, to to take that title from a guy who the audience recognizes the king of hardcore, um, that was heat. That was a that was a way for my smarmy little self, after getting my ass kicked all over the arena, to be able to say that I beat Terry Funk and get heat in the process. So the idea of me doing it didn't bother me near as much, or doesn't bother me near as much right now, is the actual execution of it, which was just. <laughs> Drek, as my Jewish friends would say, Drek. Well, there is some Drek coming up here, but before we get to it, how was, uh, how was Terry to work with? And, uh, what'd you think of Mr. Funk's ass? Well, I, I had my eyes closed, so I didn't see it. Fortunately, it, uh, it, it was not a Rikishi moment. Thank God. Terry is the, Terry Funk is, I, my only regret is that I didn't get to know Terry when, when he was younger. And, and I was younger, I would have loved, loved, loved to have been in a car traveling around listening to Terry Funk and learning from Terry Funk. Because Terry Terry was Dusty Rhodes in many respects. I mean, they, I remember when I got to WCW, and, you know, Dusty immediately kind of took me under his wing and um, kind of smartened me up about a lot of things and a lot of people in, in WCW. But Terry Funk was a sore spot. Dusty. And I think it was just because same era, same territories, you know, competing for the limelight, you know, but there was, there was always this, uh, I always got the feeling when I listened to, to Dusty talk about Terry Funk, that there was some resentment there. And I think part of it was because there was always, you know, a rumor that would float around about once every six months that Terry Funk was interested in coming in and taking over the booking in WCW. This is when I was an announcer, right? So I wasn't really involved in any of the politics. And I would just, as an innocent bystander, well, not so innocent, but as a bystander, I would hear these things, you know, internally. And But I, I just always remember there always being a little bit of an edge between Dusty and Terry Funk. And I think it's because they were so similar in many respects, not necessarily in the way they wrestled their characters, but they came up in the same era and, you know, they learned much the same way. But Terry Funk, you know, the little bit of time I've gotten to spend with Terry, even subsequent to this, uh, as recently as a couple of years ago, I went to an event with Terry and we were in, we, we ended up riding together over to the venue and just hanging out with him. He's such a, such an interesting cat. I wish I would have gotten to know him better. And he was easy to work with. He was easy to work with. Couldn't have been any easier. Outside, we see Ric Flair and his family arrive to the Phillips Arena, and our next match is for the United States title at Scott Steiner and Vampiro. 
The finish would see Medeja come from the top of the body block on Vampiro. He chases her down the ramp, uh, finally stopping her as he pours gasoline around her. Sting comes out, beats Vampiro to the back with a baseball bat, and then Steiner hits Vampiro with a belly to belly, followed by Steiner recliner for the submission win. And R&B security was then attacked by Sting and Steiner attacks after the match as well. We've got uh, a few days away here from a Human Torch match, which is our co-main event with Vampiro and Sting. But for God's sake, we're using gasoline on Nitro, threatening, low-key threatening to burn people. What the fuck? Insane. I don't know how we got away with that. I do not know how standards and practices allowed us to get away with that. Right. For all the, all the, they would get on our shit. If one wrestler was cutting a, a promo and called another wrestler stupid or ignorant, that was a no, no. Couldn't say that because you might be offending a certain part of the community. It's like, what the fuck? But yet you can, you know, pour gasoline or all around somebody with a blowtorch in your hand and set it and, and, and threaten to incinerate them. What the hell? But yeah, we did that. It's unbelievable. The next match is Goldberg and Tank Abbott, which I can't believe is a real thing. Uh, the finish. I can't believe it. I, I can't believe it was as good as it was. I thought it was pretty decent. Uh, we see uh, Rick Steiner attack Goldberg with a chair, and then Steiner and Abbott would beat up Goldberg until Nash makes the save. Uh, Nash trips up Rick, allowing Goldberg to spear and jackhammer Abbott for the win. And then backstage, Goldberg would thank Kevin Nash and tell the WCW trainer, Danny Young, to stitch him up. Uh, talk to me about, I mean, at this point, have we had a match where there wasn't a ton of interference? This feels like just no. par for course here. No, it's like a, it's like animal house. It's just, it's just, it's insane. Nothing but run-ins and ref bumps and multiple attacks and multiple people. And look, the one, you know, the one thing I will say about this show, and whether it was good or bad, right or wrong, I'm not debating that, but there at least was one kind of underlying thread throughout the show, and it was to support the old or the new blood versus the millionaires. That was the theme, I guess, that was underlying most of everything that you saw here. Unfortunately, it just all looked exactly the same. I mean, it just, it, it, it's just, it was like one, like at the beginning of the two hours, the bell rang and there were some commercials in between and then the show was over and it was like one long match because nothing felt unique or distinguished. Even the cage match was like crazy hokey shit. We'll talk about with Rick and Russo in a minute, but I don't know, man. It just, ugh. This would hurt to watch. This was really painful to watch. Missed opportunity again. Missed opportunity. Next up is a Kimberly and Mike Awesome interview. As Pamela Paulshock starts the interview, Kim tells her that she was forgiven for stealing the spotlight because she was new. And then Kim challenged Miss Hancock to find a partner to face her and Mike Awesome. Uh, what'd you think of uh, Kimberly as an on air talent? No longer part of the Nitro Girls and sort of leading that troop. But now she's got a speaking role. She's managing guys. What do you think? Kimberly is a friend of the family. Of course. Okay. I mean, she's, we haven't seen her now in a couple of years. She, she actually, her and her husband, uh, she remarried, came out and 
hung out with us for an evening over the 4th of July a couple of years ago. But and she, she, was, she was horrible. I hate to say that because she is a friend uh, and a friend of the family. But, man, she just, her voice was like fingernails on a chalkboard. And her promo, and it's not her fault. She, again, you know, when I say these things, I feel badly because I feel like I'm picking on the talent and I'm cutting down talent. And I don't mean to do that. She was put into a position that, A, she wasn't really comfortable doing. She didn't really want that role, from what I remember. And she wasn't prepared. She wasn't given any training. Nobody worked with her. I'm sure DDP did, but he had, you know, he had his own issues with the best way to do promos sometimes. And she just, you could tell, you know, you maybe have heard me talk about this in the past, but when talent who are forced to <clears throat> perform a scripted promo, they, it never sounds like they really mean it because they're memorizing it and they're not their words. There's some writer's words. You know, there's a writer somewhere in a little office on a laptop trying to write a promo that that writer thinks that particular talent might say. And more often than not, they're wrong because they don't know the talent well enough and they don't know how the talent really speaks. So they don't write a promo with the talent's voice in mind. They just write a really good promo that somebody's going to approve and say, oh, good job on that promo. But whether or not it actually fits the respective talent or not is an afterthought. Sometimes they get lucky and sometimes, most times they don't. This was a perfect example of a talent who is really underqualified to go out there by herself and cut that long promo, which for her was a long promo, when she really wasn't comfortable with it because it sounded so unnatural. It was like, I'm memorizing this script with this voice that sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's like, oh, killing me. She looked great. The Nitro girls were hot. The minute there was an effort to put the Nitro girls in the ring, Dumb, dumb idea, dumb idea. <sighs> Next up, it's a non-title match. It's the world champion, Jeff Jarrett, taking on Sting. The finish would see Jarrett beat Sting with a steel chair on the rampway. And after a sunset flip attempt on Jarrett, um, there's a three count. The referee awards Sting the belt. And you came out and said, wait a minute. I never booked this match for the title. And Sting then tells you that Jarrett is going to arrive to the bash in a body bag. Sting beats up Jeff, hits him over the head with a guitar. Jarrett's stretchered out of the arena into an ambulance. So now we've got an ambulance. Uh, a couple segments after we threatened to uh, set someone on fire. What did you think of this segment? It wasn't bad for what it was. You know, put a pretty good edge on Sting. Jeff was obviously a great worker in the ring. His character was so-so. I don't think anybody really cared about the character of Jeff Jarrett, but his performance in the ring was excellent. I liked the shot, him going off the side of the state of the ramp or whatever it was, was pretty dramatic. Um, it was, it, it wasn't bad for what it was. Let's, uh, let's talk about what's next here after they get the ambulance out of the shot here. It's DDP and Miss Hancock taking on Mike awesome and Kimberly. And this is a nice little, uh, spin that I kind of forgot happened until I watched it. As you recall, Kimberly's telling Hancock, Hey, go find a partner to take on me and Mike. Well, who else it's DDP. Uh, and awesome tells DDP. He has six days left until the end of his career. 
Kim comes out blowing mock kisses to the crowd. Miss Hancock is going to make Kim sign a paper that releases her from all the damages she's about to do. Kim laughs and signs the paper and as Hancock brings DDP out for her partner, Kimberly reminds him of the 500 foot restraining order and Paige is happy to point out that she just signed all those rights away. And now the match is on, uh, the finish sees awesome go for the awesome bomb on DDP, but Hancock distracts her or, or <laughs> Hancock gets the distraction by lifting her skirt, which allows DDP to of course sell and deliver the diamond cutter for the pinfall. I like this story. It's a, a cute TV match. What'd you think? I did too. I did too. That was a, that was a very creative uh, set up to the match kind of box Kimberly in the corner. You know, you took this character, this heel character in Kimberly, you thought she was on top of the world and totally in control. And, you know, Miss Hancock swerves her and makes her sign her life away and all the protections, you know, that Kimberly thought she had, she no longer had, which added to the stakes in the match and a surprise. And the audience was in on it. Uh, the television audience could follow it. So I thought it was well executed. And, and, and done pretty well. I thought DDP and, and Mike Awesome did a great job. DDP was really fired up uh, in this match. He looked great. Uh, it was very, very intense. The crowd reacted exactly how you would want a crowd to react. Seemed to enjoy the match quite a bit. So on my scale of 1 to 10, I'd probably give it a 7, 7.5. Shit! Son of a bitch! These are the noises I used to make when I cut myself shaving before I discovered manscaped.com. Thank you, Manscaped, for turning my life around and turning those loud shrieks into multiple peaks. Eric, when's the last time you cut your sack? Or the first time you cut your sack? Was it a traumatic experience? Did you have a little CSI Wyoming situation? Like, I thought I was going to bleed to death. <laughs> I thought this could, this could be it. This could be it. You know, because cert there's certain parts of your body you can cut, you know, and not worry about it too much, you know, your arm, your hand, whatever, unless you get a major, you know, vein. But when you're like down around your junk with a razor blade and you start hacking something up, it scares you half to death. I thought I was, I, it was like Lorena Bobbitt. I was haunted by the, the ghost of Lorena Bobbitt. Like the first, that's the first thing that came into my mind. It's like, oh my God, how horrible would that have been? So yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah, big fan of uh, landscape. Well, the little you. headlight on the gimmick, you know, I can do it in the dark. Oh, see, you're talking about the brand new lawnmower 3.0. That's the new headlight on the gimmick. It's a brand new LED light. It's going to illuminate that grooming area for a closer and more precise trimming. And oh, by the can way, I, can I interrupt you? Can I interrupt you? Right there? Yeah. You know, the other thing it does. It's like when you have when you hold it. If you do it in front of a mirror and you turn off the lights in the bathroom. So the only light is on your on your manscape device it makes your junk look scary as hell it's like a horror movie <laughs> well i mean you're gonna go do some bad things with it and by the way you got plenty of time to get it right down there this new battery in the new lawnmower 3.0 can last up to 90 minutes and if you need more than that well you're probably not a much yeah no shit <laughs> Uh, the engineering team over there spent 18 months perfecting what they believe to be the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created. Of course, it's the lawnmower 3.0. You got to check it out. It's still got the great skin safe technology you're used to. It's going to make sure that you get a close, precise trim, but you don't cut yourself. It even comes with an awesome rapid charging dock powered by USB. You got to try it for yourself. 
and you can get a great deal right now. All you've got to do is go to manscaped.com and use our promo code 83 weeks. That's going to get you an extra 20% off and free shipping. When you go to manscaped.com, you'll get not only free shipping, but 20% off at manscaped.com and use our promo code 83 weeks. Oh man. Next up, we've got this backstage promo where Pamela Paulshock is standing outside of Hulk Hogan's dressing room. And she says that Hulk had stated he's not going to fight Horace, but the next match is supposed to be the steel cage match between Hulk and Horace. And you tell Horace that he has the night off, but then the NWO music hits and Hogan comes out to the stage and he says that Hulk Hogan, uh, is not going to wrestle. But Hollywood is going to kick his nephew's ass. The cage is lowered and the match starts and it doesn't last too long. And the finish comes when we see Hulk place a chair over Horace's face and leg drop it for the pin. After the bell, Kidman enters and he's thrown over the ropes and then through a table by Hulk Hogan. What'd you make of this segment? What'd you think of uh, the cage match here? And Hulk sort of saying Hulk Hogan's not going to, but Hollywood will. That was cute. You know, I don't know how effective it was. I don't know if you know, there were any people that went, oh, if Hulk Hogan's not going to wrestle, I'm not going to watch. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, half a dozen people maybe thought he was serious and got confused and left the show. But for the most part, it was just kind of an innocuous little swerve uh, that, you know, didn't really mean a whole lot. But it was interesting. It was a cute move. Um, the match itself was what one would expect the match to be. Again, the underlying significance of the match is the Hulk Hogan, you know, Horace was Hulk Hogan's nephew. So it's a little bit of a family feud type of thing. Um, and we were trying to get over some of the younger talent because that was such a mantra, such a uh, ever present narrative and all the critiques about WCW is, you know, the young guys are just not getting their turn. And, you know, the older guys are keeping the younger guys down. So rather than, you know, working through all that and not overreacting to it, of course, you know, we embraced it. We tried to overcome it. And that's why you had Hulk Hogan and Billy Kidman in an angle, because we thought we, we, we were trying to ascribe to the theory that by, you know, putting Billy into a high profile angle with a guy like Hulk Hogan would catapult Billy's career. Didn't, won't, never would. Billy would have to elevate Billy's career by really becoming great on the mic to add to his exceptional skills in the ring. Just having Billy Kidman in a match and a storyline with Hulk Hogan didn't do anything for Billy Kidman's career, but that was the attempt here. And the same thing, you know, the same was true with a lot of the matches on this card. These were all attempts to get some of that undercard talent more exposure, give them some time in the limelight, and hopefully get them over. And that's what the Horace Hulk Hogan match was in part about. Next is a Ric Flair interview. Rick's going to tell Pamela that he's going to show Vince Russo why he's the dirtiest player in the game. And now it's another steel cage match, two on the same show. Uh, Vince Russo and Ric Flair, who had his uh, wife at the time, Beth, and of course their son Reed is all in tow. The finish would see David Flair appear from under the ring. Rick starts chopping him and Russo commandeers a ladder here, opens a, a section of the cage and climbs on top. Flair follows and now they're on top of the cage. Rick Flair is on top of a cage here. And when they climb back down, uh, 
Rick puts Vince in the figure four until the new bloodbath fell from the ceiling, covering everyone in the ring. Russo and David then beat up Rick and uh, Russo pins Rick to win the match. So I guess here, I guess the story is both you and Russo now have pinfall victories over Rick Flair. What the fuck did you think of this train wreck? It was so bad. It was just, uh, I don't know, man. I, I don't even know how to comment on it. It was that bad. You know, the, the red blood in the ring. And I mean, I get David flair, you know, their storyline there. So I'm good with that. And the way we use David here, what we're trying to do and seeing David put the figure four on his father. I, yeah, I, I get that. that. That probably worked to help put heat on David. I get all that. So it's like on paper, it's one of those things where you probably sit around in a, in a meeting or over the phone in my case with Russo and we're walking through this on paper. Um, it probably made a lot of sense, but in ex- execution, you know, just the fact that you got back to back cage matches right off the bat disqualifies it from being a good idea. It's already a bad idea just because, um, it's a cage match for the sake of a cage match with no real meaning, no real stakes, no, nothing. It's just, Oh, let's do this. That'll be cool. Let's do this. It's like a 12 year old kid booking a television show. Um, and I'm, by the way, I'm not just blaming Russo. I let it happen. So as, as, as critical as I'm being right now about the creative, I let it happen. I had the, I had a voice. I could have raised my hand. I could have called Brad and said, Brad, I don't want to do this. And Vince does you make the call, but I didn't. So I'm as guilty as the schmuck who came up with it, but yeah, I didn't like it at all. Garbage, garbage. I don't know what to say about the blood falling from the ceiling. This is just garbage, dumb. Dumb garbage. Uh, the final match on the show is the gauntlet match between Kevin Nash and the new blood. Russo comes out and says that Nash would lose his shot. If he lost a single fall, uh, or if a member of the millionaires club interferes and Nash quickly runs through the new blood members. And, uh, eventually it's seven on one until Goldberg comes out for the save. And then you said you would suspend Goldberg on thunder and Goldberg said, if that was a suspension you handed out, then you were going to be next. And that's the show. what do you think of this last segment here? Mm, it was all right. You know, it was a veiled attempt at a cliffhanger. Um, it was just okay. Scale of one to 10 and give it a four, five, maybe. Of course, the performances were great. You know, I couldn't have been better. I was at the top of my fucking game as a performer. <laughs> Listen to you but with this bullshit. But I know I got to have fun with this, right? Otherwise, honestly, it's only what time is it here? We're doing this on uh, Saturday morning. It's 11 a.m. my time. I guess it's I guess it's late enough in the morning to start drinking because that's about what I feel like doing now after talking about this for the last hour and a half or two hours. I feel like I really need to crack open a fresh bottle of Jameson black barrel. Let's, uh, let's remind everybody that even though this was a heavily promoted nitro, even with the USA today, there's tons of big pay-per-view style matches. It doesn't matter. Raw still wins the ratings for the night. Raw gets a 5.95 rating and a 9.3 share. 
Nitro gets a 2.86 and a 4.4 share. So the head to head portion of these shows becomes 5.49 versus 2.67 Goldberg, who is uh, sort of the pod Piper here for WCW, his return match, his first match on TV in six months against tank Abbott gets a 2.9 rating and nitro's audience drops 15% when raw starts. So we're going to break down the ratings a little bit more, but first let's just touch on that. Cause I thought that was worth a discussion between you and I, that nitro's rating would drop 15%. The moment raw starts, is there any math or lesson we can learn from that stat? I don't think there's anything to learn other than, you know, I'm going to reflect back to something I said, uh, a couple of weeks ago on one of our shows. Um, good friend of mine, Gary Considine, former executive producer of the tonight show with Jay Leno over at NBC told me once in a conversation that had nothing to do with anything about wrestling. He said, Eric, once the audience votes with their remote, there's almost nothing you can do to get them back. And I think I've, I've, I've used that statement in the past to illustrate points, but I think there's no better way to illustrate that sentiment or that point of view than what we have right here. I mean, on paper, you, know, you talk about the USA Today ad and all that, but even amongst wrestling fans, on paper, until you actually see what a cluster this show is, on paper, it looks pretty good. It looks like something you'd have to tune into. The people in the arena were excited as hell about it, but we lost our television audience. The audience voted with their remote. They voted a long time previous to this that they were they much preferred WWE's programming, and there was nothing that we were going to do in the short term, especially to get them back. This wasn't going to happen. And I think that's and again that's one of the one of the things that and to, to kind of bring this home and talk about you know its relevancy today. One of the things that I'm really interested in watching, and I'm not a pessimist. I'm I'm pretty much of an optimist. You probably know that enough about me by now that if there's an opportunity, I, I will always gravitate towards a positive outcome of any opportunity until something happens to convince me otherwise. But in the situation that we're in right now, you know, COVID, no fans, no arenas, and you look at the deterioration in, you know, the television ratings across the board for everybody's shows, and this is not pointing fingers at anybody because it's nobody's fault. There's no critique here. It's just an observation. But if you look across the boards at Monday Night Raw, at SmackDown, at AEW, although AEW came back nicely this past week uh, with the Mike Tyson thing, which I was really excited about, by the way, because I'm a huge Mike Tyson fan, and I thought he was used really, really well. But with the exception of this past uh, Wednesday show, where I think AEW came in at around 800,000, somewhere in that area, uh, their numbers have been gradually going down week after week after week. And my concern and my observation is, are these people going to come back? Because they have clear, they, they're still around. Logic would suggest, if you think about it, all right, more people are at home. They can't go out and play. They can't go to restaurants. They can't go to bars. They can't play softball. They can't go to movie theaters. There's no sporting events to go to. Gee, you would think more people are home watching television because there's really nothing else to do. But even though there's more people home watching television, guess what's happening to professional wrestling's audiences? They're deteriorating week after week after week after week because they're hard to watch. The question now 
in this long-winded trip into the jungle. The question is, will they come back? Now that they've voted with their remote, they've consciously or subconsciously said, eh, I don't really want to watch that. I would rather watch this for my entertainment. Is the this part of that statement something that they've decided they like more than wrestling? Or are they just going to go and watch this or something else until they get their wrestling back the way they know it? I don't know the answer. We're probably going to find out in the weeks and months to come is, is people are able to, to you know, start producing shows in front of crowds again at some point. But until then, my question is, has the, audi- the current audience voted with their remote because of Corona, not because of bad booking or bad talent or anything like that, because of bad television as a result of Corona, have they voted with the remote and will they come back? It'll be really interesting to see. Clearly, they, they didn't hear from us in this show. They voted with the remote. They started watching WWE. And no matter what we did, we were willing to set a woman on fire for crying out loud. And we couldn't get him back. <clears throat> you love wrestling from the 80s, 90s, and 2000. What about the pop culture from that era, including your favorite movies, TV shows, and hit music? From the Incredible Hulk to Hulk Hogan, the Mega Powers to Mega Man, from Star Wars to Starcade, Saved by the Pod is the premier podcast wrapped in both pro wrestling and pop culture. Each week, Saved by the Pod highlights a wrestling event and discusses the top songs, movies, and TV shows from that time period to give you a fully immersive pop culture experience. Saved by the Pod is also giving away cash. Wait a minute. That's right, cold hard cash every month. Plus, listen to find out how you can win two tickets to AEW's All Out in September or the next fan attended AEW pay per view. Tickets and cash, no other show is doing that. Join host Polly B along with Timmy C for a fun trip down memory lane and everyone's favorite, Efren, for an alternate look at the pay per views from the past. Why are they saying alternate look? Okay. What are you waiting for? Find them at savebythepod.com or on Twitter at savedbtpod! Exclamation point. I'm pretty sure the exclamation point is not supposed to be in this. I think that's, they just want me to be excited, right? So it's just at savedbtpod on Twitter? Okay. Or savedbythepod.com. Uh, serious business. These guys are friends of mine. Uh, I am a big fan of Efren and all of his silliness. Polly B is an OG and I don't know who this asshole Timmy is. Uh, who'd he ever beat? But seriously, check out Saved by the Pod. Great friends of the show. Appreciate what they're doing. And if you enjoy wrestling and pop culture, it's hard to beat SavedbyThePod.com. As far as the main event comparisons here, Rock and Triple H does a 6.47 final quarter hour. And then they do a 7.58 overrun. WCW has Nash running the gauntlet and it does a 2.7. The other head to head numbers, uh, have raw at a 5.97, which is where, uh, there's, a a conference with the rock undertaker and Kane involved. And that compares to sting wrestling, Jeff Jarrett, which gets a 2.15. Uh, and then raw falls down to a 5.38 for Rikishi and too cool taking on Val Venus and TNA and then Benoit taking on road dog. Meanwhile, nitro goes up a little bit. So some of those raw people do switch over 
and they check out the, uh, the mixed tag we talked about with Kimberly and awesome taking on page and Hancock. And of course, Hogan and Horace. And then, uh, raw did a 5.26 for Briscoe versus crash Holly to nitro's 2.79 for flair versus Rucho in a cage match. And then raw does a 6.13 for rock versus Kane versus undertaker, uh, which compares to nitro's 2.70 with Nash running the gauntlet. So it's a slaughter. And when these ratings come in, I'm curious after you guys take out the big ad in USA today, you've got multiple cage matches. You got lots of big spots planned. You're on a go home show for a pay-per-view based on everything that we hear. This feels like it's going to check all the boxes and it's going to be a big night. And then it's just a fucking thumping man. When the ratings come in, what's the mood? Are you in the office every day? How do you and Russo discover what the ratings were? And are you already working on the next week's show? Or is there a conference when the ratings come in to discuss them or talk me through what a Tuesday afternoon or a Wednesday morning looks like. Well, as I said before, I wasn't in, in the office. I didn't have an office at, at Turner any longer, and, nor did I want one. I specifically had my contract drafted in such a way that it made clear that I wasn't going to be coming into the office and participating in anything other than overseeing creative, which I was doing from my home. So uh, at the time, this was in June, so I was in Wyoming. I was at, I was here where I am right now. And, you know, once, once the show was over, I'd get on a plane, I'd fly back home, get, get home. Russo and I would start talking late Tuesday and mostly on Wednesday. Didn't really discuss ratings. You know, the idea that, you know, we would sit down every week and analyze ratings and what worked and what didn't work. It's not really true. We were certainly aware of it. We were disappointed in it. But I don't think anybody was naive enough to think that we were going to be able to turn around WCW's fortunes in a three or four or five month window. So there wasn't the pressure that one would expect on us because nobody in their right mind that's ever spent more than five minutes watching a television, more or less being in the television business, thinks that you're going to be able to turn around a ratings deficit like we had going into the show in a period of three, four or five months. This is a, this would have been, had WCW stuck it out or had, had fusion media been able to buy WCW and commit to something long-term, maybe there would have been a, a reversal of our fortune, um, over the course of 12 or 18 months. By no means am I suggesting we would have been able to overtake WWE because by that time they had such phenomenal momentum and with, you know, Rock and Sokol and Steve Austin and all the, t- you know, the people that they had at the top, Cena, you know, soon to emerge a year or two later, it would have been highly unlikely that we would have been able to overtake WWE again. But we could have certainly shored up the numbers, the number gap. But even that would have taken a year of, of really hard work and consistently good programming to, to even achieve that. So we didn't talk about it and we would talk on, we didn't talk about the ratings is what I meant. We would talk throughout the week. You know, we'd, we start, you know, isolating the things that we want to do for sure. The following week, then, you know, Vince would go back and work with whoever he was working with at the time. And he would come to back, back to me probably on a Friday or Saturday and send me a first draft of the format of the show that he saw in his head. And I would go through that format and make whatever changes I felt needed to be made or add whatever I felt needed to be added. And we would continue to tweak it over the weekend and fine tune it on Monday when we got together. That was typically the process. 
Let's uh, let's take to Twitter. We posted on Twitter that we were going to be covering this episode and let you guys ask questions. And if you haven't already, you need to follow us on Twitter so you can participate and ask questions next week. And from now on, it's at 83 weeks. Uh, Rajiv has a lot of interesting questions here. We'll try to answer a few of them. One of them that we didn't touch on here though, was during the show, there would be an occasional thumping noise over the PA system. When someone would strike another, like when Sting hit Vampiro with the bat or Hulk punching Horace, whose idea was that? And what's the reasoning? It just seemed odd to me. So they sort of sweetened the sound a little bit. What'd you think of that? You know, I don't, I, I, I would have to go back and pay close attention to it and try to pick it up. Um, obviously if we were sweetening the audience, it was because we felt there was a lack of energy, naturally speaking. So it might've been an effort to kind of give the sense of something being bigger and more significant than it really was. But I, I honestly, I don't, I just don't recall hearing it or, or, or even a discussion about it. Let's, uh, let's talk about something else that we haven't ever really addressed, which was when you guys started to sweeten the Goldberg chance and it didn't happen on this show, but of course the Goldberg chance happened naturally and organically, but in time, it felt like you guys thought Goldberg maybe wasn't the same performer. didn't have the same presentation on TV. If the crowd wasn't doing that. So, aha, we'll just use a workaround and pipe in Goldberg chance. Was that something you struggled with or was it just part of TV for you? Um, you know, you never want to have to do that. And I don't think it was because Goldberg became any less of a talent or, or less significant. I just think that we were losing audience over time and we were losing support across the boards and, and Bill happened to be, you know, a victim of it. And we weren't getting that same intensity of Goldberg chance later on with Bill that we were getting in the beginning. And keep in mind, Bill was new. It was fresh. It was exciting. You know, when Bill first emerged, things were really rocking and rolling for WCW. So, you know, we had 10 times more intensity across every level than we had by June of 2000. So, yeah, we, it wasn't something you wanted to do. You know, the, the downside is, you know, enough people would recognize it for what it was that it, you know, became somewhat public. And, and that doesn't help. But it doesn't hurt nearly as much as having Bill, Bill Goldberg come out to a less than enthusiastic chant, because that just really starts making it obvious that you're, you're, you're taking on water. So it was a, it was a choice. It wasn't an ideal choice, but it was probably the best choice at that time under those circumstances. Uh, another one from Rajiv here during your promo at the top of the show, how hard was it for you to say, uh, to Vince Russo that he was a quote unquote genius and nothing less than an inspiration. You know, it's easy for me because as a heel, you know, your character lies, cheats, and steals. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie Guerrero. Thank you so much, Eddie. So for me to be able to, you know, come out as a heel character and say those things, it was very, very easy and natural because it was indeed a lie. Rajiv would ask, you've mentioned uh, before that you don't like gimmick matches. what did you think of the concept of a gauntlet match or is that too gimmicky for you? I like them if they have a great story and are given enough time to me though, this one left a lot to be designed. Um, it is a gimmick match and 
I don't have a problem with gimmick matches per se if, like Rajiv said, and by the way, I had a great conversation with Rajiv um, on adfreeshows.com. He called in, and we uh, we chatted for about 40 minutes, I think, 35 or 40 minutes. Cool great, great fan, great supporter of adfreeshows.com. Um, and I think he's even up on the 83 Weeks YouTube channel. Uh, I think I posted that interview with Rajiv there, so... Appreciate it, Rajiv. Um, I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with gimmick matches if, if there's a story behind it, if it's a blow off to a to a story that makes sense and has an arc, and we're following the journey of our babyface character, and we care, and we've invested in the backstory enough so that when the actual gimmick match happens, the outcome matters to me. Then I'll buy into it. But to have a gimmick match for the sake of a gimmick match, which is what normally happens 80% of the time across the board, there's no real reason to have it other than, hey, we haven't hit one of these in a while. Let's do this. Or the the, the talent gets excited about performing in a cage or in a certain type of gimmick match, whatever. Um, that's not a good reason to have it. So I, I agree with Rajiv. If there's a great backstory or a great story built into it and the gimmick match is the natural evolution of that story. I'm all for it. But if you're just going to have a, a gauntlet match for the sake of a gauntlet match with no real reason, rhyme or reason behind it, then it's just a fucking hot shot angle. And I hate him. Okay. Uh, one last question from Rajiv here. Uh, and this is something, you know, I haven't talked a lot about on the show. Why did you come back to WCW during the new blood angle with your naturally gray hair? instead of the dyed black hair we were used to. Because I hated dyeing my hair. The, the reason I had my, I think Ric Flair was the first person to shave my head, I, I think. Um, that was my idea, because I was sick of dyeing my hair. I've been dyeing my hair since I was 27 years old. I started turning gray when I was 25. Um, I hated it. And here's the thing, I always joke about my hair, right, because I do have the best hair in the business, including Charles Robinson. But... <clears throat> head and shoulders above Charles Robinson. Get it? Head and shoulders. Um, my hair was so thick and heavy and grew so fast that I'd get my hair cut on a, on a Friday and, and dyed, right? I'd get my hair cut and I'd dye it on a Friday. By the following Thursday, it had already grown out about a quarter of an inch, maybe an eighth of an inch. And because my hair was so heavy and straight, it would just kind of naturally part either in the middle or off to one side. And then I'd have this fucking silver streak running down the middle of my head like Pepe Le Pew, the cartoon skunk. And I hated it. And then my option was, okay, I'll put some, you know, hair coloring for men or some stupid shit in it. And that's bad for your hair. It's just not a good product to use. So I just got sick of it, and I came up with the idea of getting into a match, and I'm pretty sure it was Rick, and if I lost, he got to shave my head. Well, they, shaving my head was my idea, of my way of going, fuck, I don't ever want to dye my hair again, because once it grew out, I could just keep my natural hair color. And I did all the way until the time I went back to WWE, and Stephanie wanted me to dye my hair black. And I was back at it again until I could get my head shaved. <laughs> just rinse and repeat. Okay, we need to let you guys in on a secret right now. Eric and I, as you know, are dog lovers, 
And I think we've cracked the code, man. Of course, we're talking about our friends over at Solid Gold. Let me ask you, though. Did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut? Or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies? Solid Gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America started way back in 1974 by a trailblazer named Sissy McGill. You see, she was a pioneer who disrupted a male dominated industry and created a natural pet food before it was cool. Sissy was inspired by European pet food and the fact that European Great Danes outlived their American counterparts. And her first recipe has now provided high quality nutrition and digestive health for more than 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high quality food is the best way to impact our pets, mind, body, and spirit. For over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category, and they have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including healthy whole grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and of course, 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs, which your dog is going to go nuts for. Solid Gold Foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with the whole superfoods, they balance with living probiotics, and they fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, supporting gut health and nourishing your pet inside and out. Right now, to see the Solid Gold Deal of the Week, go to solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. One more time, that's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to see the deal of the week. I'm telling you, you've got to go right now. Remember this, it's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. Eric's dog loves it. My dogs love it. And yours will too. And man, they deserve it. Check it out. Solidgoldpet.com forward slash 83 weeks. This is a fun question here that you and I've never really talked about, but I feel like there's a lot of truth to this. Jake Ward, right? This is Jake Rudge. Was it constantly felt backstage that WCW just needed one great big storyline idea like the NWO to turn things around? Whether it was Goldberg turning heel, Russo's shoot on Hogan, reported rumors of Vampiro being the next thing, etc. Maybe those aren't the best examples, Eric, but we've heard Bruce talk about how Lisa Wolf in the mid 90s would say, Vince just needs a hit. He's just looking for his next big hit because he had one with WrestleMania with Hulk Hogan and rock and wrestling and WrestleMania and SummerSlam. And I mean, he had hits and then he tried some other things and they were smaller hits, but hits still ultimate warrior, Brent Hart. But were you post 1996, you ride that out into 97 and then Goldberg sort of becomes a phenomenon in 98, but as you cruise through 99, and now into 2000, are you looking for that next big thing? I mean, that's, that's sort of what wrestling is about, right? You're looking for, Hey, what's going to be the next big thing that's going to carry us. Well, you're always looking for it. You're always hoping that you'll discover it or an opportunity will come your way that you can take advantage of. That will be that next big thing. Um, but it's, you, you, you don't, I'll speak for myself. I wasn't hoping for that at the expense or the exclusion of trying to develop the things that we did have and improve upon what we were doing. You know, my biggest issue, 
And, and again, I'm going to cut myself a little bit of slack here. You know, I don't think I came back to WCW until what was it, March or April? April, yeah. Um, and in 2000, so you know, I, 30 days in, 60 days in, that is not enough time to turn things around. Had I had a great master plan, had I had taken you know September of '99 off all the way until April of 2000, and spent you know 18 hours a day, seven days a week crafting a master plan you know, from a creative perspective for all the existing roster, it would have taken a year to really implement correctly. You know, so I, I was, I was looking more at, at how to achieve more creative efficiency, get more bang for our buck with, with the talent that we had much more than I was laying in bed at night, you know, hoping or trying to grab a hold of that next big thing, because that's an illusion. You know, you can't manufacture the next big thing in the short term. You just can't. You, once in a while, you get lucky, you know, and an opportunity will come your way or an idea will come your way or somebody will come to you with an idea that you see a ton of potential in. Or maybe you don't. Maybe somebody comes to you with an idea. And I'm, I'm not going to – I'm, I'm going to be gen- intentionally vague here because it's, it's WWE and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of people there, and it's really not necessary to point fingers at anybody. But there has been ideas that have exploded in WWE that almost didn't make it to television. And the same thing was true in WCW. I'm not picking on anybody. You know, sometimes somebody will come to you with an idea, and you go, eh, I don't know. Eh, we'll give that a try, and then bam, it blows up. But, you know, that happens once every couple of years. <laughs> you know, the rest of the time, it's just grunt work. It's just work and trying to create it. Um, and, and it's hit or miss. You know, you, you can't always predict anybody that any, the only people that, that, you know, have never made a mistake or, or, or is willing to admit the mistakes they've made in creative are the people that have never done it for a living. You know, how many, how many, how many movies have great writers and great directors written or directed and great actors starred in that sucked, that died? You, you can't become a star. You can't become a success in anything without, you know, having a track record of things that you track record of things that you did that you wished you didn't. <laughs> but the good ideas. Once, here's here's one of the things I really believe, and this is something else I think I've learned now. After part of it is just doing these shows with you, Conrad, and going back and looking at, you know, what worked and what didn't work, and putting things into context. I really, um, more than ever now, believe that investing in story, investing in your characters, planning for the long term. Not chasing a number or chasing a weekly rating. That's short-term thinking. I think it really is incumbent upon people that want to turn their fortunes around in the television business right now, whether it's wrestling or otherwise, is you know to focus on the quality of the story and the characters because that's always what drives success. Every once in a while, just like we did with reality television when – you know, Survivor, you know, became a big hit in 2000 and was like the number one rated show on network television. And then shortly thereafter, everybody started dumping scripted content and 
everybody started going towards reality shows or non-scripted content. And everybody in Hollywood thought, you know, writers are, they're going to be extinct. Nobody's going to use writers anymore because the entire world is shifting over to reality television. Well, that was true for a minute. And then it went back to scripted television with shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and many others. And now you can't turn on television without seeing world-class scripted entertainment anymore. It's everywhere. So there's always a shift. And I think right now we've been going through this phase for the last couple of years where, yeah, we don't really need story. We just need to give them this high, fast pace, you know, short attention span, ADD, but very risky, high-flying action, because that's what the audience wants. And to a degree, that's true. A portion of the, of the audience does want that. But when when you give... When you, when you give your audience so much of that and you compromise story and characters, you start to flatline. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing flatlines now is because there's just been too much emphasis on high-flying, crazy, super-athletic action for the sake of crazy, super-athletic action as opposed to super-athletic action, crazy shit with a great story behind it. And we're going to get there, but it's all long-term planning. You know, chasing things week to week or chasing a rating or, you know, it's not the way to go about business. All right, check it out, guys. We want to tell you about a great new sponsor here on the show. It's VOC Nation. They're one of the longest running weekly podcast networks. Starting 10 years ago, back in 2010, VOC Nation provides live daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with the hosts and guests by phone call, email, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include the legendary Ken Resnick, who you probably remember from the AWA and WWE, former WCW performer, the Maestro, Wes Briscoe, who you probably remember from Impact, Brady Hicks, who you remember from Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and former Philly radio personality, Bruce Wirt. VOC Nation's two most popular shows are Wrestling With History, featuring Ken Resnick and Bruce Wirt, streaming live on Wednesday nights at 9.30 Eastern, and of course, In The Room, featuring Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, and WCW alum, The Maestro. And by the way, both of these shows take callers live during the show. And these guys have had incredible guests recently. General Adnan, Tito Santana, Haku, Earl Hebner, Dangerous Danny Davis, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Brodus Clay, and so many more. Former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez will be starting a live streaming interactive podcast on VLC Nation called Shelly Live. And you can look for that on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. There's also a ton of uh, archived content that's absolutely free. It's got great interviews from the past with Hulk Hogan and Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Sting, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. What are you waiting for? Go listen live right now at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all of our podcasts by searching for VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. Oh, and follow them on Twitter too, at VOC Nation. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. No doubt about it. Uh, Eric would write in, what are your thoughts on the blue ring canvas? We've seen logos be an identity on WCW rings many times, but it's typically gray here. It's blue. What's your take on that? It's a mile. Like you did like the blue better. Yeah, I did. Why, did why did we not see more of that? Did, do you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't know why we didn't see more of it, but I did like it better because it, 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 number one, you know, white reflects. So you don't want anything white because it just makes everything else dark. Um, gray was kind of just dingy to me. 
I just liked the blue. It was bright enough, and it 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 just looked fresh and crisp to me. Just personal preference. That's all. But by and large, when you said, I don't know why we didn't see more, I mean, you could have said, Hey guys, we're going with blue and then they probably would have done that, but it's just wasn't something that was that important, right? No, it just wasn't a priority at that time. There were, there were bigger priorities and bigger issues. Uh, Dan Walter day wants to know, did you think this show was going to be the game changer to help win the Monday night war? Of course, maybe you didn't think you were going to win, but I mean, you had to be, even though you're not as invested as maybe you once were that you've acknowledged here on the show. I mean, you got to be disappointed that Goldberg's return after six months is not a bigger number, right? I, no, I was pretty realistic. I knew where we were. We were in a hole and we were struggling every week to dig out of that hole. So no, to, to answer the question, I didn't think that this was going to be the show to help turn things around. As I've said, you know, for the last 15 minutes, I knew 20 years ago. When, when when I did this, that WCW was in for a long, hard road to get back close to where we were and close the gap up. So to suggest that this one show, as much as it felt like a hot shot show, and it was, uh, and bringing back Bill Goldberg, was I disappointed? I personally wasn't disappointed. Was Turner Broadcasting disappointed based on the amount of money that they had to pay Bill, thanks to Henry Holmes and Barry Bloom? Yeah. They were, because <laughs> the return on that investment was obviously not going to pay off for a long, long time. But I, I didn't, I, I wasn't concerned about it because I had a realistic expectation going into this. Let's take a look at uh, the Hardcore Championship. We got lots of questions about that, of course. That's really the reason I picked it because I, I thought it was ridiculous that you would beat Terry Funk for the Hardcore title, and you beat Ric Flair at Starcade, asshole. Um, PDK wants to know, why do you think the hardcore title is such a joke in WWE? Or at least it was for example, we would see Perry Saturn come with a trash can full of junk and a mop, and he would be your typical challenger. It seems to me that's what the 24 seven title has also become. It's just a time wasting joke of all jokes. What say you? I feel different about the 24 seven title than I do about the hardcore title because the 24 seven title is intended, was designed, conceived to be funny and to be humorous and not to be taken too seriously. Whereas the hardcore belt, for example, or the hardcore championship was one that people tried to make you believe they actually cared about, which was fine, except for the way they went about it was ridiculous. I don't care if you hit me in the head with a fucking garbage can. I will let you go out and hit me in the head with a garbage can for $20 a pop all fucking day long. It doesn't hurt. Everybody knows it doesn't hurt. And oh yeah, a cookie sheet? Come on. It's so silly while trying to be presented as serious that it's just like an internal conflict for me. It's like it's, it just causes my brain to fight. The left side wants to kick the shit out of the right side, or the right side wants to kick the shit out of the left side just for watching it. My brain's in a battle just watching hardcore shit because there's nothing that's in that. And look, bully, good buddy of mine, Devon, love him to death, has nothing to do with the people that made their bones in it. Because in there was a point in ECW, 
and 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 even after ECW, there was a point where hardcore matches, you know, Mick Foley could make them really believable. But then they got to a point after that hardcore glory day period, if you will, when it just became cheesy as fuck. I'm sorry. I mean, the minute somebody pulls something out from underneath the ring, my the first question any reasonable audience member would have is, why is there cookie sheets and pie pans under the ring? And why am I supposed to believe that it hurts when I have one in my house and my friends and I beat the shit out of each other with it for fun, pretending we're wrestling? It just it doesn't make any sense to me. And again, I think the contrast with the 24-7 title is they're not to be taken seriously. Nobody's trying to make you think that they're serious. They're trying to entertain you with humor. There's two different things. Well, we appreciate you taking time to uh, break down another disappointing Nitro. Next week, though, we're going to switch gears. We're going to do something totally different. We're going to talk about TNA from 2010. Uh, of course, we're going to cover one of their big pay-per-views. This is Slammiversary 8. It went down on June 13th, 2010. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this one, believe it or not, because uh, I've had a lot of fun covering this TNA era with you. On top, it's Rob Van Dam defending his world title against Sting. Jeff Hardy is going to be teaming up with Mr. Anderson to take on Beer Money, which is James Storm and Robert Roode. We've got Jay Lethal taking on AJ Styles, and Ric Flair is in AJ's corner. Uh, Desmond Wolf has Chelsea in her corner, or his corner rather, and he's going to be taking on Abyss in a Monsters Ball match, which is a hardcore match. Matt Morgan will be working with Hernandez. Jesse Neal will be working with Brother Ray. Madison Rain will be taking on Roxy in a title versus career match for the TNA Women's Knockout Championship. And then the X Division uh, title will be on the line when. Doug Williams defends against Brian Kendrick and believe it or not, the opening match on the card, Kurt Angle and Kazarian that happens at the, uh, impact zone in Orlando in front of roughly 1100 people. What, uh, what jumps to mind when you think about Slammiversary eight with sting and Van Dam on top? Got it. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and watch it because it's, it's a blur to me. I really, nothing stands out to me in my mind and I'm not suggesting that it wasn't a good show. But uh, when you ask me, you know, what's your reaction to it? What are my thoughts on it? I don't have any. I gotta go back and watch it to remember, remind myself. Slam anniversary, the very first one, happened in 2006 at the Impact Zone. This is the first Slam anniversary where there's no uh, King of the Mountain match, so uh, it's a little bit different. And this is going to be uh, a fun show that we have fun breaking down because Dixie Carter to promote this show just a few days ahead of time. She would become famous for this, but maybe this is one of the first times she did it. She sends a tweet out that says there's a big surprise at slam anniversary that could ultimately change TNA forever, uh, which is, uh, going to be not the case slam anniversary. Way to, way, way to manage expectations. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to try to do that. Listen, we did our best with a really bad nitro today. We're going to do our best with, uh, maybe an underwhelming pay-per-view. We'll see what, uh, what all the critics thought and what you thought we would encourage you to go check it out. Uh, we're going to watch it on the impact plus app. I hope you do too. Then no, this is not a paid ad. No, we're not getting paid to shield for them, 
but Eric, it's uh, it's even cheaper than the WWE Network, and there is a ton. I mean, a ton of great old stuff on here. Yeah, sometimes you gotta you gotta look for it, uh, but it's in there, is it not? It is indeed. You know, I encourage you if you you know one of the great things about the Impact Plus app is, you know, you get a chance to see you know early AJ Styles and early Bobby Roode and you know a lot of talent that. You know, or, or many talent that were are now in WWE that kind of cut their teeth in Impact. So it's it's and, and you know you get to see some good stuff with you know Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and and others. So there there is despite uh, despite TNA's reputation within the industry, there's still a lot of great content there. Can't recommend it enough. Go check it out. ImpactPlus.tv is where you can find it online. Uh, we'll be back next week with more great content. Of course, if you haven't already, you need to check us out over at adfreeshows.com. We just did a hell of a uh, bonus episode where we broke down uh, the time you wrestled and defeated the Young Bucks with a little help from your tag team partner, Matt Hardy. We told the behind the scenes story and talked a little bit about the Young Bucks shoot interview where they sort of broke down what happened from their perspective. And to see where they are now has become fairly remarkable, you know, to see what all of this became. And you mentioned earlier, and and I wanted to keep it moving to keep the flow of the show somewhat intact, that you were pleased with how you saw AEW use uh, Mike Tyson this past week. Of course, he was there to present the new TNT championship belt to Cody Rhodes after he picked up a victory over Lance Archer on the pay-per-view. So Cody is going to be your first TNT champion but then the next day they did a pull apart after a, uh, a, a Jericho inner circle segment. Uh, Tyson comes down to the ring with, uh, his band of friends is all they were called, but three of the group are probably hall of fame UFC legends and Tyson tears his shirt, gets in a shoving match. It's a big brawl. It felt a lot like, uh, raw back in the day with, with Tyson and Austin, except Jericho in the Austin spot, it was heavily criticized online, but you liked it. what do you th- How did you land on? Hey, they used him well. Because I think they did. You know, I mean, he's Mike Tyson for crying out loud. Mike Tyson has been in the news quite a bit as of late. You know, whether it's speculation that he's creating about you know getting back into the ring, and I've seen a number of people that have stepped up and said they'd want to fight, including Evander Holyfield. Uh, would would love to get in the ring with with Mike Tyson. So whether that's you know a shoot or not, or whether it's really going to happen or not, it doesn't really matter. Mike Tyson's been in the news quite a bit, and Mike Tyson is an interesting cat. I mean, I've I've always been a fan of Mike Tyson, you know, from when he was young, and obviously he you know, ran into some personal issues as as we all know about, but he's come out of that, and I I find him to be one of the more interesting sports characters in the last couple of decades and i think they did use him right you know they didn't they didn't overexpose him um they didn't use him in a way that took anything away from other talent look let's just look at the numbers the following week right after the the big pay-per-view and the show that they did i think it was 847,000 viewers this past wednesday yeah they were up. It's the biggest number they this is the biggest number they've had in a long time. So that would suggest to me that Tyson at least had something to do with that. And to, to deliver a number, 847,000, you know, it's not 2 million like Monday Night Raw or 2 million like SmackDown, 
but for that show on that particular night, that's a big jump from what they had been doing in this, you know, current Corona environment with no audience. So I think it's a good, solid number. And like I said, they didn't use them in a way that took anything away from anybody. They used them in a way that enhanced everybody that was associated with them. I don't know why this would get such criticism online, unless it's kind of a Pavlovian dirt sheet reading audience that feels the need to kind of, you know, hate on something. But I, I liked it. I watched the clips of it. I watched it pull apart. I thought it was really, really well done. I just, I don't know where, where the criticism comes from or why. Well, I, uh, I know we don't talk about current stuff a lot, but I appreciate that you sort of gave your perspective uh, on something as current as this past week, but next week we're getting our way back machine talking 10 years ago, TNA slam anniversary, 2010. We'll be there. Uh, catch all the bonus shows and all the behind the scenes content. You can check a stick at and get this show early in ad free over at adfreeshows.com. But until next time, follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks. He is at a Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. All right, guys, thanks for listening. We greatly appreciate your support. As a reminder, you can get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. And you've got to join us just to watch wrestling with Arn to go back and watch him winning the tag titles and then challenge for the NWA world title. We're great fun. And, uh, next up, as you heard, want to make him watch the renegade match where he dropped his most coveted television title to him. It's a lot of fun over at adfreeshows.com. You can also get the brand new episode where Bruce Pritchard and I discussed the very first in your house from 1995, where the company actually gave away a house. We also watched a, uh, an old Saturday night's main event from 1990 with a tremendous match between the heart foundation and the rockers. Of course, demolition was there to watch on Hulk Hogan was working with Mr. Perfect. The ultimate warrior was defending his brand new world championship against Haku. So many great things happening on that old show from 1990. You don't want to miss it. It's all over at adfreeshows.com. And that's also where you can watch wrestling with Jim Ross. We watched a great match from 1984 in mid South part of bill Watts promotion. When the midnight express took on the rock and roll express and perhaps our most requested topic, the plane ride from hell. Well, Jim tells it in great detail and I've got lots of follow-up questions. I think I even got under his skin a little bit over at adfreeshows.com. Tony Schiavone and I did a watch along for the first episode of tiger King, which feels like a fever dream and is almost as surreal as our most recent bonus piece of action, where we watched the stars of the NWA playing a charity basketball game against Charlotte's police department in 1988. It is a lot of fun and you don't want to miss it. You can also get all the current shows that we're doing this week, including tomorrow's what happened when where we watch the impact debut on Fox sports net. And of course, grill and Jr. It's all about stone cold walking out and you don't want to miss ECW's one night stand. All of those shows are going to show up early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. In fact, we've already got next week's Arn Anderson for a hashtag ask Arn anything. I'm telling you, we're overloading you with this content and some really fun experiences. Uh, certain levels will get autographed merchandise in the mail, some special commemorative memorabilia here and there. But the big to do is a big get together. We're going to do in Huntsville. Arn will be here. Eric will be here. JR is going to do a run in. Tony's going to scoot over. It's going to be a lot of fun to spend the weekend with these guys and, and, and have some fun drink some beer and watch old wrestling. You don't want to miss it. We're trying to create a little community over there. It's all happening at adfreeshows.com. 
there's been fun stuff. You know, Eric's doing zoom party calls and, uh, we've even had some fun little skits with Tony Schiavone and Lois. Maybe the, my favorite new thing we've done is on the road again. We mounted a couple of dashboard cams and we're teasing and dropping out new episodes every week with Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone as they make their way to these shows in Jacksonville. It's a lot of fun. See what all the fuss is about. It starts at just nine bucks. It's adfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can <laughs> you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.